Matthew chapter 27 is the dark chapter in the gospel. When I read it, I always think about night. It feels like it's at night, but it actually takes place in the morning. But like the Narnia clip, evil has its moment. Darkness seems to prevail. And Satan's demonic powers are partnering with people to destroy the Creator. In this chapter, Matthew includes Jesus' arrest, his trial, the mockery, his crucifixion, Judas hanging himself, and the crowds choosing a terrorist and a murderer over God. Not exactly a very encouraging portion of Scripture. But that's the passage we're looking at today. Just the first 31 verses, and then Dave Perry on Easter or Good Friday is going to look at Jesus' crucifixion. But this is a difficult passage. You have Pilate, Judas, and Barabbas. Not great characters to preach about, but one of the beauties about going through the Scriptures chapter by chapter, is that we get to come to some of these passages which are difficult. I have never, ever preached on Judas, but I'm going to today. The Bible says that, that all of Scripture can be a lesson to us, and even Judas's life can give us some lessons. So first of all, we're going to look at Jesus' trial, and then we're going to look at Judas's betrayal. Jesus' trial is verses 11 to 31. We're going to just, I'm just going to summarize that. Then we're going to come back and actually look at the passage on Judas verses 1 to 10. Verse 11 to 14 tell us that Jesus only spoke four words throughout his whole trial and torture. When Pilate said to him in verse 11, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied with four words. He said, you have said so which probably means, yes, I am, and you know it deep down. And the reason I say that is because in Matthew 26 and verse 25, Judas, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, Judas says, is it I, Lord? And Jesus replies to him with these same four words. You have said so. And what Jesus was saying is, yes, Judas, you're the one, and you know you're the one. You have said so is an indirect way of saying yes and at the same time calling attention to what the other person really knows deep down inside them. Verse 15 to 26, the crowd chooses Barabbas over Jesus, a terrorist and murderer over the Son of God. This same crowd was shouting Hosanna, salvation, to the highest, it was a prayer and a proclamation as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And just days later, they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And right here is a picture of two realities. The first reality is the existence of evil. This is not just flesh and blood. There are evil, malevolent, demonic forces. 
We don't just live in a physical world. We live in a spiritual world. And the existence of evil is very prevalent. We are engaged with unseen malevolent powers. The second reality we see in this section on Barabbas over Jesus is the wickedness of the human heart. We choose other things over God. The heart is desperately wicked, Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, and deceitful above all things. The human heart is sick. It's lost. It's idolatrous. In fact, someone has said the human heart is an idol maker. We're always producing things that are more important than God. And the human heart is vulnerable to evil. That's why these two realities, the presence of evil and the wickedness of the human heart, both these realities are why people go into schools and shoot innocent children. Why a man rents a hotel room and premeditatedly and cold-heartedly shoots and kills as many people as possible at a rock concert. Why 800,000 people are massacred in just 100 days in in the Rwandan genocide while the world stood by and watched. And that's when Rwanda was 90% Christian. These two realities are why our government wants to punish the church for upholding God's moral laws and force Christian doctors and nurses to help people commit suicide. And it's why our nation kills almost 120,000 babies every year. And why 3.2 million children have been killed since our Prime Minister's father legalized abortion in 1969. The crowd chose Barabbas over Jesus. And the human heart is still choosing Barabbas over God. And then we come to verse 27 to 31. This is Jesus' mockery. Jesus has been scourged. His back has been torn apart. He would have had flaps of skin hanging down as the, as the uh, cruel Romans whipped him with bone and, and pieces of metal. Jesus probably would have been in shock. And then before 600 soldiers... He was stripped and a scarlet robe put on, a twisted crown of thorns put on his head and a reed put in his right hand as a scepter. And they knelt and mocked him. King of the Jews, king of the Jews. They spit on him and struck him on the head with the reed. The creator who spoke the stars into place. Jesus was humiliated, mocked, shamed, abused. But the scripture says he opened not his mouth. By Roman law, a defendant who refused to make a defense had to be assumed guilty. That's why Pilate, in verse 14, the scripture says, was greatly amazed. Jesus made no defense. Jesus was absolutely perfectly, completely innocent. 
but he stood guilty because of our guilt. When my dad was reading this portion of Scripture in his 80s, I said to him, so dad, what did you think? And he said this, that poor man, Jesus, what they did to him was awful, just awful. My dad thought Jesus was a victim. I said, Dad, that was the whole point. Jesus wasn't a victim. We're the victims. He took our place. Jesus was in total control throughout his arrest, his trial, his torture, and his crucifixion. When he hung on the cross, no one took his life from him. He gave his life up. We'll see this when we talk about this on Friday. Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. Jesus Christ was in absolute control throughout all his suffering. His life wasn't taken from him. He gave it up. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him. Mark 10, verse 33 and 34. Jesus said, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into. The suffering of Jesus is not the victimization of an innocent man. It's a sovereign and loving God using all the evil of Satan and men to accomplish his purposes. It was God who put his son to death on the cross. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the Jews. And it wasn't Satan. It was God himself. And Jesus' death on the cross means we can be freed from the power of death and the power of sin. And 700 years before Christ suffered on the cross, Jeremiah the prophet spoke about this in Isaiah 53, verse 10 and 11. He said, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. Well, that's the trial of Jesus. Let's look at the betrayal of of this man called Judas. Matthew chapter 27, we're going to read verses 1 to 10. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him, led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. I want you to just underline that little phrase. He changed 
his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went out and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful for us to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah and Zechariah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price on him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your living word. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who takes the word of God and breathes life into it and opens our eyes to see and our minds to understand. And Lord, we're asking this morning that you will open our eyes in wonder and open our hearts up to your great love and power. We ask this in Jesus' wonderful and glorious name. Amen. A number of years ago, there was a pastor in our family of churches, a godly man, a man who wrote hymns and worship songs, a theologian, a great Bible teacher, an astute debater who had been in relationship with us, many of us, for decades. And he ended up having an affair, which was a shock. As the truth kind of slowly came out, as it often does when someone falls into sin, especially a pastor or a spiritual leader, it began to, to, to unravel and we began to understand what had gone on. It went on for about a year. We were all shocked, stunned, and we felt betrayed. His wife and kids felt betrayed. The other husband and their family felt betrayed. The church felt betrayed. And then to make it worse, he got offended and rejected all the help and all the discipline and restoration that was put in place. Thankfully, he was restored to his wife. But he left the church and our family of churches and the relationships that have been cultivated and treasured for decades probably the greatest pain in human relationship is betrayal. Because betrayal is when we break trust. It's an act of deliberate disloyalty. It comes from the Latin tradere, and it means to hand over. If your spouse has been sexually unfaithful, either with someone or pornography or some other thing, you know what it feels like to be betrayed. If a close friend has exposed or rejected you in some way, you will feel betrayed. 
And if someone you've trusted or respected violates you in some way, you will understand what betrayal is. Today, Matthew 27 describes to us the greatest betrayal in all of history. It's the betrayal of the Son of God. Verse 3 says, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. Judas, this is Judas Iscariot. There were two Judases among Jesus' twelve. And Judas is always called Judas Iscariot. And he's known in the Gospels as the betrayer, the traitor. Ironically, Judas means praise. Judas must have had some kind of desire and passion to follow Jesus or he wouldn't have been included and Jesus wouldn't have chose him as one of his 12. In fact, Jesus also gave him the responsibility of being the treasurer. John 13 tells us that during the Passover supper, the covenantal meal where Jesus washed all his disciples' feet, he washed Judas's feet as well But the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. John 13 and Luke 22 tell us that after Judas had taken the morsel of bread from Jesus, Satan actually entered him. It's the only place in the scripture, in the New Testament, where it says Satan entered him. And the reason he did was Judas cooperated with him. And then in Matthew 26, the scripture tells us that Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. On the Mount of Olives, and it was dark, and they just had torches, and Judas gave them a sign. He said, you know, the one I kiss, that's the one. That'll be Jesus. And so with a kiss... He betrayed him. And then in Matthew 27, this passage we've just read, when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, he felt great remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests. And then he went out and hanged himself. What a tragic story. How did Judas go from being One of the chosen twelve, seeing Jesus do signs and wonders and miracles and healing, feeling Jesus' love and acceptance and his joy and his majesty, being in the presence, manifest presence of God. How did he go from that to betraying Jesus? Let me give you three thoughts as we end about the life of Judas. The first one is, Judas loved money more than God. Verse 3 says he brought back the 30 pieces of silver. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. This was probably about three to $500 in today's currency. But that wasn't the beginning of Judas' issues with money. John 12 tells us, that when he was the treasurer, he actually used to steal money out of the purse. John 12 verse 6 says, Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas's darkness and betrayal began with stealing. Why? Because he loved money more than God. 1 Timothy 6 verse 9 and 10 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, plural. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. When you love money more than God, money becomes your God. You worship money. Your loyalty is to money. Your priorities revolve around money. You're preoccupied with money. You'll have a fear you won't have enough money. You'll be anxious and worried about money. You might even look for ways to cheat or withhold information on your income tax and then rationalize it. And if money is your God, you won't tithe or give generously. In fact, Malachi 3 verse 8 and 9 calls it stealing from God. In Malachi 3, God says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? God says, In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. The only time in Scripture God says to test me, put me to the test and say, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I won't open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. Now, I know you don't need to hear this message. I'm not speaking about loving money more than God because this church needs to hear that. This church is the opposite. You are a generous people, incredibly generous people. Do you know that you have given almost $6 million to missions in the last 30 years? $6 million. And this year, This last year, you have given over a million dollars to our building project. So I'm not trying to get at anybody here. I hope you don't hear that. I'm just taking the life of Judas and saying this was a fatal flaw. He loved money more than God. Now, you know, there was a time in my life where I loved money more than God. Four years old, I used to collect pennies in a plastic cup. Now, you won't know what pennies are, especially this section. Pennies were a currency that you used to be able to get several pieces of candy for one of them. And now they don't exist anymore. But back then, I used to keep it in a little plastic cup right beside my bed. And I would count it and stack it and put it in the cup and guard it and keep it. In fact, my sister said to me one time, Ron, you're cheap. I said, I'm not cheap, I'm just thrifty. Now that was four years old. 
And then I got saved. When I was 19, I met Jesus. And Jesus began to teach me that loving him was far greater than loving money. And my life changed. And I know many of you have that same testimony. God doesn't need our money. And tithing and generous giving, while it's unto the Lord, is not for the Lord. It's for us. Tithing is to set us free. Generous giving is to release us from the seduction of money and free us. And God says, oh, if you will get a hold of this, there's no limit. Test me in it and see. I'll pour out more than you need. And that's God's name. He's the God of more than enough. Not just enough or less than enough, but more than enough, Romans 5 tells us. When you love money more than God, you won't be generous. You'll struggle even with tithing, which is just the beginning of generosity. And when you love money more than God, you will fight over money. Especially when it's an inheritance. If you've ever gone through an inheritance, you'll know the vulnerability when it comes to money. Mary's dad, who was uh, with us in Winnipeg for a number of years, passed away several years ago. And he had, a, he had an inheritance. And so there's only two sisters, Mary and her sister Judy. And they both love God more than money. So they were both clear. God's more important. But one of the relatives loved money more than God. And, and that person started to work. Sewing things. Gossip and, and, and slander and questioning things. And, and producing suspicion and greed. And it actually started to affect Mary and her sister until they realized, wait a minute. What's going on here? This is not how we relate to one another. We love one another. We love God more than money. What's going on here? And they stood against it. They prayed together. And they rejected that influence and suspicion. And and we got through it. But it was such a vulnerable time. Because when you love money more than God, you will fight over money. Judas' downfall didn't start with betraying Jesus. It started with loving money more than God. Secondly, Judas loved approval more than God. When he saw Jesus was condemned, verse 3 says, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver. Judas didn't operate on conviction. He operated on convenience. Judas was a hypocrite. And he was dishonest. 
We see this in John chapter 12, where Mary of Bethany takes this expensive perfume worth one year's wages, and she lavishly breaks it over Jesus' feet. It filled the whole house. Ken spoke about this last week and did a brilliant job on the extravagance of devotion. But Judas said this, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge in the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus, Judas put on a show to make himself look more spiritual, more devoted, more righteous. But it was a lie. Jesus actually knew Judas's heart. But Judas still chose to put on a charade because he loved the approval of men more than he loved God. And that's why Jesus said, when Judas said, is it I, Lord? He said, you have said so. Yes, Judas, it's you. You're the betrayer and you know you're the betrayer. But even then, Judas couldn't be honest with Jesus even in the last hours of his life. Jesus hates hypocrisy. He reserved his most scathing rebukes for hypocritical religious leaders. Matthew 23, Jesus calls them vipers and serpents and whitewashed tombs. Jesus has no problem with sin. Yeah, we think Jesus has a problem with sin. That's why we try and clean ourselves up and make ourselves look presentable. Jesus has no problem with sin. He has a problem with hypocrisy. Jesus can work with sin. When we're honest about our sin, Jesus can work in that. But he cannot work if we're hypocritical. Jesus can help the vilest sinner but he can't help dishonesty and hypocrisy. Honesty is the one prerequisite for seeing God. Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that word pure doesn't mean perfect. It just means sincere. Judas loved the approval of men more than God. And lastly, Judas changed his mind. Verse 3 says, when he saw Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Now that's what the ESV version says, and it's actually a very poor translation. The King James Version says Judas repented. That's even a worse translation, because this word for repent, which Jesus used in Matthew 4, Verse 17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter used in Acts 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized. This word for repent is the Greek word metanoieo. It's used 36 times in the New Testament, and it means to change your thinking. Evidenced by a change in behavior or action. But that's not the word used here in Matthew 27. The word that's used here, which is translated 
remorseful in the New American Standard Version and the NIV Version, or regretful, which is a much better translation. This is the Greek word, metamelamai. And it literally, it's only used five times in the New Testament. It literally means to care afterwards. In other words, to have regret or remorse. Judas felt a change of emotions, but not a change in thinking and in behavior. He was remorseful, so remorseful, he went out and hanged himself, but he never repented. Repentance produces change. Remorse merely produces sorrow. Repentance is not necessarily with tears or feelings or lots of emotions. It can be, but it's not necessary. Sometimes it's just a cold, hard choice to change our thinking and our behavior and do what's right. And when God is convicting us about something, it's not enough to be remorseful. He wants us to repent, to change our thinking, evidenced by a change in behavior. And don't wait till it's too late like Esau did in Hebrews 12, verse 16 and 17, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The Bible tells us it can be too late A sobering fact. If we persist in a sin and persist and persist and persist deliberately, there comes a point where it's too late. It's not because God won't forgive us. It's because our conscience becomes so hardened the scripture says it can even become seared. We're not interested in forgiveness. And that's what happened to Esau and to Judas. Judas's greatest crime was not betraying Jesus. His greatest crime and tragedy was that having betrayed Jesus, he never asked for forgiveness. Jesus would have forgiven him. That's why Jesus suffered and died on the cross. The difference between the traitor who betrayed Jesus and the traitor who denied Jesus, which was Peter, was that one went out and wept bitterly and turned towards the Lord and his people and asked for forgiveness, and the other went out and hung himself. Jesus would have forgiven Judas. That's why Jesus died on the cross. There's no crime. There's no sin. There's no darkness. There's no evil. There's no corruption. There's no perversion. Too much that Jesus Christ can't forgive us. And free us. And restore us.
So what can we learn from the tragic life of Judas? Number one, get free of the love of money. One of the best means for doing that is by giving generously and tithing and testing God and seeing God open up the windows of heaven. Number two, be honest with God and with yourself. That's called integrity. Avoid hypocrisy like the plague and avoid trying to impress people more than you want to impress Jesus. And thirdly, don't confuse repentance with remorse. God's forgiveness is absolutely unlimited. But it needs to be asked for. And when we ask, the Bible says he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. Maybe you've never received God's forgiveness. Maybe you've been in the church for many years. Maybe you're listening on the internet or you're watching on our live stream. But you've never actually said yes to Jesus and embraced his love and forgiveness. Maybe you haven't been in the church. Maybe you've been an atheist or an agnostic. Or maybe you've been someone who knew Jesus at one point, but you feel like you've done something that he could never, ever accept you back. I want to tell you he can. There's no depth to his forgiveness. And we are all in need of it. I don't know about you, but for me, it's daily. I, I revel in his forgiving power daily and his cleansing power. And on Friday, when we come and we rehearse that old story which many of us can recite with our eyes closed and our ears stopped, yes, he got whipped, he hung on the cross, maybe today's message will drive that truth a little bit deeper of how much the Son of God suffered so that we could be totally freed for the asking.